the, the fact is that in the classical world, the idea of Republican politics, of representative politics, of freedom of speech, uh, of a chamber of review like a Senate, you know, or public deliberation of the rule of law, these were invented in Greece and Rome. You do not find those things in other civilizations. You simply, they're not there. There's no republics in ancient China. There's no republics in pre-Columbian America. You know, there are societies and they may have had their various merits, but, but representative democratic politics, they were not. Uh, and in addition, many other fine things uh, grew out of that, which is not to say that those societies were in any way perfect. The republics ended up giving way to empires, to tyrannies by any other name. But uh, those traditions were foundational to what we think of as Western civilization. They remain so. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Orpike, and uh, joining me is the poetically challenged Jonathan Astro. D- do you like a good poem? Uh, yeah, yeah, I like good, like good poetry. Um, don't quiz me on it, on, on anything, <laughs> but yeah, I like a good poem. Got any favourites? Oh, look, you know, um, uh, d- yeah, well, actually, do you know Cats was, was T.S. Eliot's <laughs> poem, and, uh, and that's, True. that's nonsense, so, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, here to help us make sense of poetry and a number of other things is, is the great Paul Monk, yeah, uh, I I really can't wait for this interview, it's going to be fantastic. Paul Monk is a published poet, author, scholar, and public intellectual. His books showcase his unique background and diverse interests, which we're going to get him to talk about. Uh, They range from Shakespearean sonnets to geopolitics. His books include Thunder from the Silent Zone, Rethinking China, Dictators and Dangerous Ideas, Uncensored Reflections in in an Era of Turmoil, The Secret Gospel According to Mark, which is a biography, uh, Credo and Twelve Poems, A Cosmological Manifesto, Opinions and Reflections, A Free Mind at Work, 1990-2015, Darkness Over Love, a writer's workbook. And just prior to this interview, we have been told there's a, a new book and a new new book coming out. So the, 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 the latest book is called Three Graces. So what was the subheading again, Paul? Uh, companionship, Discretion, Passion. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, so well, uh, and we'll, we'll get into uh, perhaps uh, the next next one shortly. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. Is it frustrating being an intellectual in Australia of all places? Uh, only an Australian would know what I'm talking about here. We're a nation obsessed with sport and booze, and any talk about culture is usually met with, yeah, right. <laughs> yes. Look, uh, I've had 50 years' experience of this, and uh, uh, I would say the short answer to your question is yes. Um but I do hesitate to come across as a snob. You know, I mean, there's intellectualism and intellectualism. And uh, uh, all I can say is that uh, um, I haven't readily found a, a home for my natural interests, uh, and you might say instincts. Um, and uh, it's been a lot of hard work to create myself as a poet and feel comfortable writing poetry. We could come back to that theme if you like. On the other hand, I should say that over the last 20 years or so, uh, I have arguably flourished as an essayist and uh, and I have gradually become aware that I have a, a serious readership, you know, that people do appreciate the essays that I write. Um, and and uh, those for whom I write the poetry certainly appreciate the poetry. <laughs> Um, whether it will get great attraction, particularly here, remains to be seen. But uh, it's been very satisfying writing it. Um, and I suppose I would add to that that the poetry I write in particular is not 
Um, it's certainly not bush ballads. It's not inward-looking Australiana. You know, I've always been cosmopolitan in my interests, and uh, so the range of reference across both the sciences and the humanities is very broad. And uh, I hope it'll find, uh, particularly these most recent two books, a global audience. Well, Paul, perhaps we need to get you to tell us a little bit about your story. I'm sure you, I've heard you do this a, a couple of times now, but, uh, but we need you to do it again uh, because you are a true Renaissance man. Uh, uh, can you give us a little introduction to your extraordinary life and interests? Uh, where do I start? Um, well, I do love telling a little anecdote about um, precocious reading. My mother used to give me very good children's books when I was a uh, very little guy. And for some reason, I took to reading like a fish to water. She used to give the same kinds of books to my siblings, but um, while they're all perfectly intelligent, they didn't dive into reading in the way that I did. And none of us have any particular explanation for that. It just happens to be the way I'm constituted. And this uh, came to the surface in sixth grade when uh, there was a breakup party at the end of the year, and uh, we were supposed to bring along some lolly water and cake or sandwiches, or whatever, um, go to a public park and play games all day. But uh, while my mother gave me $2, which in those days is 968, would have been worth about $20 or more today to get stuff. I knew that if I went to the local news agency, I could get serious books for a dollar each. I could get modern political biographies. So I made a beeline for the news agency and I bought myself a copy of each of Stuart Schramm's biography of Martha Tong and Alexander Worth's biography of Charles de Gaulle. And I went to a different park altogether and sat all day reading Life of Mao. I didn't go to the party at all. And uh, I got thoroughly immersed in this book. Uh, it was a Friday. I went home at the end of the day and my mother said, how was the day? And I said, it was great, which it had been. It just hadn't been what she thought it was. And uh, I was back at school on the Monday and my class teacher says, why weren't you at the party on Friday? And I just told the truth. I said, I was sitting in a park all day reading Life of Mao Zedong. And I swear the teacher must have thought that's the weirdest excuse for truancy she's ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think not believing me, she said, well, your punishment is you're going to have to give a talk to the class about the Chinese Civil War. And my attitude was, that's my idea of what school should be like. So I, I said, have you got a map of East Asia? And yes, she did. She rolled it out over the blackboard and a pointer and away I went. I gave a talk, happy as Larry. And she said to my mother later, he seemed to know what he was talking about. I didn't have the first idea. <laughs> 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 and uh, nobody could have predicted at that point, of course, that, that, uh, you know, how many years later, uh, um, 30 years later or something, I would become head of a China desk in defence intelligence because I didn't by any means set a beeline for that kind of job. When I went to university initially, it was to study law because everybody said, you've got the gift of the gab, you'll make a QC. But a few months into the law degree, I thought to myself, I'm not sure what I'm doing here. I haven't really figured out who I am, how the world works, what I truly want. And I wrote a little manifesto for myself. This is a Friday afternoon and uh, and I said in it, I'm going to drop out of law right now, today. Revolution, comrades, you know, and I, I'm going to go out and invent myself. I'm going to um, do bodybuilding. I'm going to take up piano. I'm going to start reading everything in sight. Uh, I'm going to travel um, and uh, become a real human being. And uh, uh, after two years of that, I realised that I needed to structure it a bit more. So I went back to university, but I didn't go back to law. I did a, a degree in European history at Bowen University. And uh, um, there were incidents along the way during that, you know, where um, my uh, determination to learn as this thing from just flounce around at university and get a piece of paper became very evident. And one of my favourite ones is one day I bumped into my social theory uh, tutor in the book room and uh, he said to me with a grin, you know, I walked into the departmental office the other day to collect the essays and Susie Sushman, who was the 
departmental secretary held up your essay and thrust it in my face and said, you shouldn't make students work this hard. And he said, uh, don't blame me. This guy's just crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so you get the general flavour of it. And, and as I got to the end of the degree, I thought to myself, well, you know, now I need to get serious. I've got to earn a living somehow or other. And uh, uh, I set my sights on doing the Master of Arts in Law and Diplomacy uh, at the the Tufts University Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy in Massachusetts. And to do that, I had to sit the what's called the graduate records examination, um, which I duly did. And I appear to have got you know close to a perfect score. And I got offers from Tufts and Harvard and Princeton. The only problem being that they could offer me a position, but they couldn't uh, pay my fees for me. I needed a scholarship or private money, and neither of those was available. So uh, I went to ANU instead and did a PhD in international relations. And that got me around the world um, on fieldwork. And uh, for the first time, I started to think I'm becoming the person I really wanted to be, you know. Anyway, I could go on, but you get the general idea that along the way, I should just throw in because we'll come back to this. I always wanted to be a poet. And, and that was inspired as much as anything by seeing Dr. Zhivago in 1975. And I wanted to be like Yuri, uh, not necessarily die in the street like Yuri, but write poetry like Yuri for a beautiful woman like Lara. <laughs> And it's one of the greatest sources of satisfaction in my life that I've done that. I, it took quite a bit of experimenting over the years. I wrote poetry for quite a few women without really hitting that bullseye. But the last few years, as a, a balding and aging man, I've hit the jackpot. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get into the poetry, because we have some some questions around that topic, you, you did mention that you studied European history, and we've got a few questions about uh, Western civilization. Uh, what do we mean when we talk about Western civilization, and is it inherently bad? Oh, I'll answer the first question first. Is by no means inherently bad, and I, I think it's it's an absurdity that so many people have somehow got that idea. Um, but how would we define Western civilization? Um, uh, I would say that there are three distinctive features of it, and they grow out of one another. The, the first is the classical world of Greece and Rome. Uh, the fact is that in the classical world, the idea of Republican politics, of representative politics, of freedom of speech, uh, of a chamber of review, like a Senate, you know, of public deliberation, of the rule of law, these were invented in Greece and Rome. You do not find those things in other civilizations. You simply, they're not there. There's no republics in ancient China. There's no republics in pre-Columbian America. You know, there are societies and they may have had their various merits, but but representative democratic politics, they were not. Uh, and in addition, many other fine things uh, grew out of that, which is not to say that those societies were in any way perfect. The republics ended up giving way to empires, to tyrannies by any other name. Um, but uh, those traditions were foundational to what we think of as Western civilization. They remain so. Greek drama, Greek poetry, Roman politics, Roman law, um, Latin and Greek language. Um, and anybody who's grown up in a, a European or settler society, if they're oblivious to that, has no idea what they're talking about. You know, to, to wipe all that away, so let's all bad and we wish we were indigenous, is just nonsense. Um, but the second phase of Western civilization is the emergence of Christianity which, of course, those who are true believers think somehow descended from on high and was a pure revelation. It was, in fact, of course, an historical and sociological phenomenon, and it was a syncretic religion built of components of, of classical Judaism, Greek philosophy, and mystery religions around the Mediterranean basin. 
the the uh, Muslims are not altogether mistaken when they say it's actually polytheistic because between the Trinity, the Virgin Mary, and the saints, you've got a whole um, pantheon of, uh, of revered figures, uh, not just Allah. <laughs> Um, but it's a very rich and complex tradition, and it was central to the emergence in the Middle Ages after the collapse of the Roman world uh, of new state societies, educational systems, ways of life, um, which gave rise, among other things, to polyphonal music and ultimately to the very rich musical tradition that West have, which is again distinctive. It's no accident that around the world today, Western opera, classical music, um, you know, Beethoven, Mozart, etc., cetera, uh, universally loved because they have a richness that um, is, is unique in a lot of ways. But the third and, and in a sense decisive component of Western civilization is the emergence from the 17th century of a scientific revolution. The idea that it's possible um, to demonstrably understand how the world actually works as distinct from myths and superstitions and uh, sacrifices to dubious deities. Um, and that, again, is something distinctively Western. The, the, the modern sciences, physics, chemistry, biology, etc., were pioneered in the West. And the, the proof of that is that they've been taken up all over the world. The technologies that we use today are founded in those sciences, and those sciences begin in the West. They did not begin elsewhere. It's not to say that there hadn't been inventions elsewhere. People make a lot now of saying, that, oh, but some of the mathematics we attribute to the Greeks was really invented in Babylonia and uh, various things were invented in China. That's all true from a practical point of view in the same way that, that there was a lot of engineering of an impressive kind in, say, ancient Egypt, you know, they built the pyramids after all. But science isn't simply about pragmatics and, and getting things done. It's about actually understanding why you're doing it and having a theory about why it works that is then generative of new results and that is also susceptible to self-correction through systematic inquiry. That's the 17th century scientific revolution and that has taken over the world. And if that's resented and dismissed as Western, then again, there's a fundamental misunderstanding because the very people who claim that that is so use their mobile phones, that they use and rely upon satellite technologies and so on, which would be simply impossible without those sciences. Critique is healthy and essential to finding meaning in, in works, if we switch to, to, to art for a second. But do you think that there is a following on from from what you've said that there's a lack of gratitude towards artists uh, and work that is fairly undeniable based on its longevity and contribution uh, cross culturally as well? I'm happy to talk about Hamlet's treatment of Ophelia uh, or the lack of non-binary or Latinx people in uh, the play. Uh, but basically, I- I'm grateful that Hamlet exists. You know, it's it's a gen it's generous and moving and unifying. So, so what do you think of this idea of, of, of gratitude uh, or, or lack thereof, uh, particularly in, in the, you know, relation to the Western canon, perhaps? Yeah, uh, I think that one possible answer to that is that uh, so much richness accumulated over such a period of time that after a while it just gets taken for granted. And there's a, there's a gorgeous little illustration of that, uh, an anecdote that I had some years ago about a young girl in year 12 who's studying Hamlet for OVCE and is asked, you know, well, you're, you're reading Hamlet, what do you make of it? And she says, well, it's sort of interesting, but it's full of cliches. <laughs> 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 so, you know, that this it's become so embedded in the language, you know, and, and Shakespeare, of course, uh, for those who actually understand him, is 
the single most prolific source of neologisms, you know, of new expressions, new words, even in, in English, quite a remarkable author. But if you're unaware of that, if you don't know English before that, if you haven't studied it more closely, if you're just reading the play, you keep, as this girl apparently did, coming across phrases, you think, well, I've heard of that before. That's not you. <laughs> <laughs> but she's got she's got a bit of an excuse, Paul. Where, but but the pe- the people who are who are gunning for Shakespeare and everything else, um, oh, have they? Do they know the play in that to that level of depth? Really? I mean, or do they, it seems to me they know a lot of, about uh, you know bell hooks and whoever else doesn't like it. You know what mm. I mean? Yes. I think the short answer is again and again when these critiques come out, the authors of them demonstrate their ignorance, um, both of the things that they're criticising and of the issues that are at stake. Um, the the woke culture at the moment is a strange phenomenon. It reminds me very much of the Cultural Revolution in China. Fortunately, it hasn't got completely out of hand yet, as, as Mao's movement did. It was immensely destructive in China. Um, but... Uh, the, the problem, I think, that we have is, is first of all, that the sheer quantity of what there is to know and understand is so great that with the best one in the world, uh, it's very difficult to impart it to young people. There isn't enough time. Um, and our curriculum has become crowded um, by other concerns, some of them worthy concerns and, and some of them questionable. Um, but there are only so many hours in the day. And I've often said to friends with complete candour that it's taken me my whole lifetime to accumulate the range of learning that I have. And you can't expect most people to do that because there are other things to do in life other than read, you know. And uh, and even so, I, I would candidly say that I've just scratched the surface. You know, there's an immense amount that I would love to dive deeply into and there isn't time there are great books that i want to go back and reread and i can't find the time you know because life keeps bowling along and i'm 65 now and i keep thinking to myself well you know i might live for another 20 years and um, i might flourish during those years but that would still only be a third of the years i've already lived and i'm never going to be young again that's the way life is so we've got a challenge in front of us um imparting to people uh, a digestible, usable form of what we would understand to be the Western canon. And at the same time, we, precisely because Western civilization took over the world, both epistemologically through the sciences and 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 uh, in um, more questionable ways, perhaps in terms of colonial domination, uh, we now have a global world and there's a lot to know and understand about other cultures uh, in the same way that we all perhaps grow up speaking English and then we realise, well, you could learn French or German or Italian, Spanish, and there's Greek and Latin, but that's quite apart from learning Chinese or Arabic, or Hindi. Um, and I really wish I spoke a dozen languages. You know, I've, I've got friends who are polylingual. In fact, the woman for whom I've written this latest book of poetry speaks English, French and German and reads Latin. And to me, that's simply marvellous. And she will readily text me in English, French, German, Latin, leave it to me to understand or translate. And, and happily these days, um, we've got Google Translate. So if she sends me something in German, you know, I can generally make out the Latin or the French, but the German I can't. So 
I Google translate it into English and then I compose an answer in English and translate it back into German and send it back in German. And the first second time I did that, she responded, your German's a bit dodgy, Mark. I suspect you're using Google Translate. <laughs> she had me in one. <laughs> hard, hard taskmaster. Mistress, yes, yes. She's, uh, she's really something. We can talk about that a bit later. Now, you, you are a published poet. Um who, who and, and you got your start by winning a sonnet competition, uh, learning your craft by cramming every single Shakespeare sonnet that you could. Um, I, I've heard you speak uh, reverently about works that appear in the Western canon. I, I'm very happy to be wrong, but uh, all this seems completely out of step with what you're allowed to do and say these days. What, what, what's your view on, and, and let's use the blunt term, wokeness? Oh, so as distinct from, uh, from poetry, uh, I think wokeness is a is a, to put it gently, a juvenile enthusiasm. Um, I remember reading a book 25 years ago by a chap called Don Tapscott about the digital era. And uh, he made the remarkable statement in that, that if you think that the generation of the 60s were impatient with their rebellions, you've seen nothing yet. The digital generation are going to be really impatient because everything's moving faster and they can, well, will be able to share ideas much more rapidly and he was onto something there, and I think that we're seeing a bit of that um, because people look around and they do see, of course, various degrees of inequality, uh, of injustice, of prejudice in society, and then they arc up. They make a militant cause out of this as if really none of this should be and it should change now uh, and that any history that doesn't accurately represent the way things ought to have been is bad and should essentially be obliterated and rewritten to be correct and this is a strange way of looking at things but as i said it it is reminiscent of mao's uh very dubious effort to do a complete radical makeover in china by by destroying the classical past in china and inciting the young red guards to physically assault their teachers and tear down statues and throw people out windows and so on um, and uh, uh, it needs to be reined in because it's simply destructive there's every ground for having a considered and honest conversation about how we can have a more just society. There are classics in political philosophy and epistemological philosophy going back, needs to say to Plato and Aristotle, would seek to address exactly those issues. But now we've got people saying, oh, well, there's a passage in Aristotle's politics where he defends slavery. He's got to go. <laughs> <laughs> so, you you know, you need to slow these people down. But But... Uh, when you get mobs who are rampaging, when they're so convinced that they're correct and that any objection to their views is is just unconscionable, then there's difficulty even having that dialogue. And I'm happy to say that that out of deliberate effort, I position myself over a lifetime to participate in such a dialogue in an informed way, and I'm very happy to do it. Um, but I'm I'm not at all happy at the prospect of being um, uh, cancelled or assaulted because of that well they don't debate paul they 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 uh, that this is the problem is that you know you you are more than well equipped to have these discussions but the the rhetorical uh trick that that, that they pull this circular reasoning uh or the the chinese finger trap they've created it, it is such that um you'll be cancelled before you, you get in the room. You'll be deplatformed. You'll be smeared and 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 pulled from whatever position you had just for saying that, you know, yeah, that that Shakespeare uh, was all right. Yeah. <laughs> it was yes, a- yes, and uh, um, there is an element of that. I mean, 
uh, I haven't yet, to my knowledge, been, uh, you know, gone after in that precise way. But um, uh, you're probably both aware that in Australia, for some considerable time now, there's been a bit of trench warfare between um, the Murdoch press on one hand and the ABC, or what used to be the Fairfax press, on the other. And uh, I've got a broad spectrum of friends in terms of their political opinions and religious beliefs. But what I have found over a considerable period of time is that there will be those who will say to me, how can you bring yourself to write for a fascist rag like the Australian? And others will say, how can you write for the Spring Street Soviet, you know, when you're writing for the age, you know? Uh, And I say to them, wherever I write, I write to keep standards as high as I can and only write what I think and I'm not told to follow an editorial line. So I don't see that I'm doing any harm. Um, but illustrative of how these views become entrenched is some years ago, I sat down for a meal with three old friends who'd gone to the same primary school as me and we'd all come from DLP families, uh, Catholic families, and, and in the course of our life we'd all changed our political views and our religious beliefs and we'd all worked in one way or another in or on China. So it was quite a coincidence. That's what brought us together for this dinner. And I gave each of them a copy of my book on China and as one of them who, who's been a very successful a business figure, quite a public figure, really, in this country, took a receipt of my book. He said, of course, it's well known that you're an extreme right winger. And I said, uh, it is? But to whom? Based on what? <laughs> you know, um, and he never really answered my question. And I I assume that he meant that it was well known that I write in, or used to write in Quadrant and that I write in the Australian. And uh, I said to him, you know, if you ask me to characterise my philosophical and political outlook, I'd say that I'm a liberal in the tradition of John Stuart Mill. And if that means that I'm an extreme right winger, we've got a serious problem. And, and I actually was asked late last year to give the dinner speech at the annual dinner of the University of Melbourne Liberal Club. And I called the speech, Je suis Mill. Uh, I'm, I'm Mill. And I basically said to the young liberals gathered there and some of the elders who were present, that the Liberal Party in Australia is sometimes described really as the Tories. It's seen as the Conservative Party, and many people in the party do identify as Conservatives. But I said the the single most notable founding father of Liberalism in that tradition was John Stuart Mill, and he was not a Tory. He wasn't even a Whig. He was a radical Democrat. Uh, He wasn't a religious believer, much less a Conservative one. He was a devout, devout, if you will, atheist. He believed in women's emancipation and enfranchisement. He believed in birth control. He believed in parliamentary reform and in tax reform. That's what a liberal is to me, I said. And I'm not sure about the rest of you. (laughs) And yet here I was being described as an extreme right winger. So there's a lot of ideological confusion out there. Um, And uh, I think some people take the view that if you you take a serious interest, for example, in reading Plato, you are a Platonist. You know, it's as if you would shun something unless you're already committed to it. Well, that's the opposite of what education should be about. And I remember a publisher saying to me years ago now that he didn't read the Australian on ideological grounds. And, and I said, well, it seems to me if you if you think you hold different opinions to those who write in the Australian, that's a good reason to read it. Why just read what you already agree with? What use is that? Mm. Do you think that do, do you think social media and, and and the internet age has had a had a hand in in that sort of polarization where someone won't read a newspaper? I think it's uh, it's had two impacts. One is an increasing number of people, as we all know, don't read newspapers because they think they can get everything they need online and more quickly. And to some extent, they're correct. Um, and so newspapers have tried going online, of course, to try and keep up with the pace. But the other thing is that what the social media have made possible 
uh, and in some respects encouraged based on their business models is the formation of, of thought bubbles in which people get into online groups, some of which of course span the whole world, in which all they're doing is is reinforcing one another's prejudices uh, and expressing themselves in very emotive language. And, and that can be political, it can be social, it can be sexual, it can be scientific or pseudoscientific. Um, I believe that the Flat Earth Society has got a whole new lease on life because they're able to find one another around the world and instead of being isolated, <laughs> you know, as they should be, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, and if you're only talking to one another, you become like a, you know, a little religious sect. Um, and uh, not only, therefore, are you constantly being emotionally and to some extent intellectually reinforced in those beliefs, but you're discouraged from asking questions that would challenge those beliefs. Um, that's not healthy for our society. It's not altogether new, mind you, you know, that goes a long way back. If you look at the history of Christianity, and I'll be writing a, a paper shortly on the rise of Christianity as part of a project I'm working on, you see that very quickly, uh, instead of one religion, everybody agreeing and being cheerful and cooperative, it splits into sects and they argue bitterly with one another right from the start about what's really the truth and what their priorities are. I mean, Peter and Paul are arguing about whether circumcision is necessary for Gentiles. And away we go, off to the races. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you mentioned emotive language a second ago. I would love to talk to you about poetry. I, I feel as though poetry has no tradition anymore. There seems to be like zero engagement with the art form. Why should people care about poetry? Well, it seems to me that, that poetry is something that flows uh, naturally from the human experience of the world, whether or not it's recognised and developed. And I mean that in two ways. One is that we are language animals as human beings. Uh, and language entails the possibility of expressing ourselves articulately. Um, we're also musical beings uh, in a fundamental way. And there is some good evidence that music as a means of human expression is actually older than segmented speech, than the language as we know. The two come together in poetry and in virtually every tradition of which when we know pre-literate societies have poetry. They speak their memories in lyrical forms, which makes them easier to impart, easier to remember, uh, and more moving uh, to listen to. So in, in the, you know, famously in the Western tradition, the epics that Homer committed to writing were for centuries before that oral traditions and bards would learn them and recite them by heart. And we know that that's been true in many, many societies. Um, what writing makes possible is to record and refine and share that um, and to fix it almost, as I like saying, like insects in the amber. Um, and certainly my experience of poetry is that again and again, and particularly in recent years, I have an experience or a conversation um, and I'm really moved by it. And to be able to express that concisely in words uh, and captures it. You know, and it, it gives it shape, which otherwise starts to fade. But other memories quickly crowd out experiences on a daily basis if you don't capture it that way. Um, Shelley, 200 years ago, wrote a famous essay called In Defense of Poetry, in which he argued that the, the capacity to give heightened expression, uh, fresh, musical, challenging, emotional, to one's experience of life, uh, enriches the other people around you who, who find themselves unable to do that. Um, and there's pretty good evidence that that's always been so. 
So what is it that's happened recently that's undermined that? Well, there are several convergent things. One is that with um, the whole modernist movement from about 100 years ago started to object to the classical forms of poetry and in an important sense object to the musical nature of poetry. It became a verbal thing. And it was Ezra Pound who declared, but first thing we've got to do is smash the pentameter, right? Um, Make it new. I, I believe that, in fact properly wrought, the pentameter is the most natural conversational form of English prose. You know, if you if you write that way, or if rhetorically you speak that way, people actually find it easier to listen to. But Pound uh, and others, including Eliot, you know, famous and accomplished poets, seem to think that it was time to do things differently. And as a result, the poetry that, that they wrote, to say nothing of many people after them, um, became in a lot of ways more and more difficult to understand and absorb. Um, if you make the effort in the best cases, it, it can be rewarding. But as Timothy Steele wrote in a book called Missing Measures about 30 years ago, uh, beginning by saying that poetry is more than metre, poets ended up saying poetry is something other than metre. And after a while, you struggle to understand what exactly it is, as distinct from fragmented prose. Um, so I think that's been part of the issue. But another, and at least as important an issue, I think has been the thing that we've been alluding to in this conversation, which is that with the development of a global culture, we've all been in a kind of blending pot and all sorts of things have been flowing backward and forward in a way that is at once enriching and confusing. So if you're not operating in a coherent tradition anymore, then it's difficult to know where you should take your bearings from. What are your reference points? What do you know in common? What can you share with others if they're unaware? Um, and finally, uh, the invention just in the last generation or so of the internet has meant, as we've said, that all sorts of stuff is flowing around uh, in the, uh, uh, as it were, the ionosphere, and, and uh, most of it is not at all poetic. So the capacity to distill your thinking, to order it, to make it musical, coherent, memorable, is being eroded by the sheer flood tide of second-rate uh, prose, second-rated best sometimes. Um, I'd say all those things are in action at the same time. And uh, in my case, um, I had to grapple with all that as it occurred, but I've built a way of life myself centering on a library, um, and it, not the internet, is where I have my anchor. And I've read the poets and their poetry and the lives of the poets, you know, going back millennia, and I am anchored in that. So when I find somebody, particularly a woman that you know I'm in love with, who is also literate, um, then you share that privately. And, and to some extent, if others appreciate it, which clearly some do, and I hope many others will, so much the better. But it is in the first instance, a way of being in a world of expressing one's experience of life. And I've really enjoyed doing that. Got a very big question for you, but but uh, in a second. But just to follow up on that, I think that's a fascinating idea. Can you exp this idea of being anchored in your inner library and and not being on the internet? I, I am fascinated from this from a creative perspective. Is this a a are we talking about a choice you've made to sort of um, you know go offline for? portions of of your for most of your life when it comes to your to your work and to is this a, is does this manifest itself uh in, in an active way 
Yeah, like focusing on the library as opposed to just like because I find myself getting lost in the slipstream of the internet and, and washed away down, down that. So, is this a choice you've made? It is a choice consciously in recent years. Um, on the other hand, uh, of course, there's a certain inertial momentum involved because I built up this library before there was any internet. Um, you know, and uh, I've got you know, I've got thousands of books and they're organised by category. You know, across almost every discipline you can think of and so I know where things are and where they belong and I've quite deliberately built that up over many decades um, and uh, it's true of course that the internet makes it possible to check things in a way that is actually very difficult or cumbersome in a library even a well-organized one I'll give you a little illustration of that um, about 15 years ago I was editing uh, my book of essays the west in a nutshell and I, I wanted to just check as a point of detail what the maximum crowd carrying capacity of the Circus Maximus was in ancient Rome. I'd written based on sources available to me when I first wrote the essay that it had been 300,000. I'd always been a bit skeptical because that's such an enormous figure. Granted, the arena was three times the size of the MCG, so that on the face of it, that, that's simple arithmetic, right? But anyway, I, I went to my library and I pulled out about half a dozen books where I thought I could find the answer. And I went to the indices and I, I went to the tables of contents and I flicked it and I couldn't pin it down. So I finally thought, look, I'll, I'll try Googling it. So I just put into Google crowd carrying capacity uh, Circus Maximus, 4th century. And bing, there it was. <laughs> just instantly just came up, not only the number, you know, but the scholarship behind it and, and the Latin sources from the 4th century testifying to it. It was just remarkable. And I thought, well, that's an illustration of the technology at its best. That's, that's a staggering achievement, right, that search engine. But nevertheless, I've, I've got the library and, uh, you know, my, my books are all annotated. I, I remember I used to, when there were still secondhand bookshops, I used to cull my library every now and again, get rid of books that no longer seem to have a place in it, given limited space. There's only so much space in an apartment. <laughs> and uh, there was a particular bookshop, a secondhand bookshop in Elgin Street I used to go to, and I would sell off books. And the owners were uh, a couple, probably about the age then that I am now, and they were fascinated. Uh, they said to me once, you must have a wonderful library because the books you get rid of are so interesting that we plunder the boxes and take books for our library before we sell the others. Um, and anyway, one day I, I went in there uh, thinking that I'd get rid of some more books and they weren't there. They'd left a graduate student in charge of the store and it turned out he was doing a PhD in philosophy at Melbourne Uni. We fell in a conversation and when I gave him my name in order to leave a note for the owners, he said, oh, you're Paul Monk, I've got your book your copy of Charles Taylor's Hegel. He said, wonderful annotations. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was just delightful. <laughs> that is That tradition has gone, the writing in books. My mum, I've got her her books from a long time ago that she's written in and annotated, and she used to, was big in of writing her name at the, in the, the, at the, on the first page as some sort of, I don't know, like it's just not something people do oh, anymore. I, I still do it. You know? Every time I buy a book, I write my name and address and the date on which I purchased the book. And I annotate books. People have said to me for years that I must read super fast. But the truth is I don't. I read thoroughly and I, I underline, I annotate, I highlight as I go. So by the time I've finished a book, I understand what's in it. And I can go back to it and find a quote more readily because it's likely to be marked up. There's a young protege of mine, a woman who's doing a PhD in cancer research, said to me, uh, few years ago, pre-COVID, she said, you know, I've just realised that you highlight the important parts of the book, whereas I highlight the bits I don't understand. 
<laughs> I thought that was very interesting. <laughs> well, it's time for the big guns. This is the big question I had for you. There aren't many people I could ask this question to, but I know you'll have no hesitations. What is meant by truth and beauty in art? Well, uh, of course, Keats famously claimed that the two were the same thing, you know, truth and beauty. Um, I'm not sure that they are, um, although we'll come back to the specific question of art. Um, if one's asking what is truth, um, I would say many people these days have a confused idea that we all have our own truth, you know, and people use that expression, um, it's true for me or my truth or your truth. Um, I think that's a... That's a very confused idea, right? Um, we've developed an idea of what we mean by truth, primarily through the sciences. Um, but even if it comes to the humanities, you know, there are rules of evidence and reasoning that must obtain if you're to make any credible claim to have something that others would agree is the truth. Because it doesn't matter what you think in the end. It's a matter what others can accept as having been shown. That's truth. And truth is often not beautiful. But, you know, the truth can be very confronting at times or bewildering. You know, think of cosmology. Uh, I mean, we as a species, so to speak, have gone in the space of a few hundred years from thinking that, that the solar system was the cosmos and that everything circled around the Earth to realizing that actually the solar system is just part of the galaxy. And it's very big. And not only is the Earth not the center, the sun is not. To realizing that the galaxy is not. The cosmos at all it's one galaxy among billions of galaxies you know uh, and then we discovered that that the greater proportion of what's out there is dark energy and dark matter and we don't even know what they are um this appears to be true right but it's very bewildering from the point of view of the of the human-centered cozy little worldview we used to have that god made the earth and put us on it because we're special and he's got a scheme of salvation and you know if we're good, we'll end up in a good place. Otherwise, bad luck. <laughs> um, the truth is far more complex and, and I would argue far more interesting. And so it is with history. You can tell yourself a comforting little story um, about your folk, but it's far more mind expanding if you delve into a history that makes you realize that you're a very small part of a very complex picture and you're not at the center any more than we are in the center of the universe. As for beauty, um, you know, there's a very old saying that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And um, uh, to some extent, that's true, um, particularly when it comes to romantic infatuation, because we've all had the experience of somebody that we know falling in love and we shake our heads and think, why exactly are they in love with that person? I don't, you know, I can't quite see it. Um, and uh, I'm sure that would be true. You know, people would say of the women that I've been in love with that they, they don't share my perceptions, perhaps, but there it is. But... Nevertheless, there are criteria of beauty, and, and Aristotle uh, was not the only one who wrote about this, but he made the observation that, that beauty has a lot to do with proportion. So whether we're talking about sculpture or music or perspective in painting or the human form, um, there are some things which we instinctively or intuitively regard as beautiful and others that we recoil from. Uh, it takes a very refined sensibility to see beauty in what is not intuitively well-proportioned or, or naturally beautiful, right? And hence, we have this generous ideological view these days that everybody's beautiful, right? When in fact, objectively speaking, by normal criteria, that's far from the case, <laughs> right? Uh, 
Um, uh, but we, we labor, you might know, say, in a romantic way to find beauty where it's not obvious. But there's a generosity of spirit in that. And, and artists sometimes bring out this, right, by depicting things with an discerning and appreciative eye that we might otherwise overlook. And uh, so I think that uh, uh, truth and beauty aren't necessarily the same. Where they overlap is probably in those Aristotelian criteria of, of proportion. You know, we expect whether it's an opera or a sonata or a symphony, that it will have a structure and a resolution. And if it doesn't, we think something's wrong. It's, it doesn't quite work. I have a, a, a slight case study. Now, this is this might seem trivial, but it is, it is uh, topical. So Jordan Peterson recently got kicked off Twitter for making a blunt comment about the historically, uh, in, in that it was uh, the first time that uh, Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition had, had featured a, I don't know what to say, a larger model on the, on the cover. And he says, quote, sorry, this is a tweet, obviously, sorry, not beautiful, and no amount of authoritarian tolerance is going to change that. <laughs> this, this got him. This got him to- totally kicked off. They, they, like in the same, well, him and Donald Trump kicked off. But the Taliban's still there. But anyway, <laughs> these guys are kicked off. So uh, the, the, this comment might. Uh, it's, it's a lot of things. It's unsolicited. It's rude, perhaps. But, to, but the point here is that we're being told that there is no such thing uh, as an ideal in terms of physical beauty, even in something like Sports Illustrated, which is a very specific, uh, different from what you said. You said that, you know, we can find beauty in, in other things or artists can help us find beauty in, in, in things that, that aren't uh, particularly. But, but Sports, Sports Illustrated is, is very straight up of, of, you know, if you're on the cover of that, you've worked, this is a career, you, you're, you are looking an ideal of physical beauty. So why is there this desire to denigrate physical beauty or convince or to sort of convince everyone in a Svengali-like manner that it doesn't exist, it's not real? I think it's a species of nihilism in a way. You know, it, it's up there with the bizarre eccentricity of those who've been writing academic papers uh, in recent years, asserting that mathematics is a species of white domination um, and that the notion of 2 plus 2 equals 4 is just an ideological statement, Right. Um, this is, a, I mean, most of us look at this with incredulity and think this is just gobsmacking. I mean, how can this possibly be published? How can any intelligent person hold such an opinion? Um, and I think that the same kind of thing has been going on for some time in the arts. Um, but it's blended with, um, I think, an ideological notion that somehow difference and inequality are unfair and therefore they should be removed or it should simply be denied that they're there at all. Uh, you know, we want not only equality of opportunity, which is hard to obtain, but equality of outcomes, which is frankly impossible, right? I mean, if you said that everybody has the right to be an AFL superstar, what could you possibly mean, right? And yet we have statements in a variety of fields these days that are equivalent to that in the nature of their claims. Um if you approach that for another direction and say nobody should be an AFL superstar because if they become one, it makes other people feel bad about themselves, well, it comes to the same thing and it's it's destructive. And I know people, including some friends of mine, who say that the overemphasis on celebrities, whether sports stars or movie stars or beauties, uh, does cause social problems because it discourages people from engaging in normal, healthy sporting activities. They they get glued to the set or going to the ground to watch the stars instead of exercising 
themselves. Well, that's something you might address in a reasonable way, but I don't see it as grounds for abolishing excellence or denigrating it. And I certainly don't see it as grounds for saying there's no such thing as excellence. Uh, uh, Jordan Peterson, I guess, might have anticipated the reaction he got. <laughs> I think he did. I think he wanted Maybe to. he was being deliberately provocative. But, you know, I mean, I, I talked before about the way in which we react differently to the people that our friends or associates fall in love with, you know. Um, mm. I remember many years ago, a, a very good friend of mine asked me whether in my considered opinion, this was a confidential conversation, I certainly won't name anybody, but he said, did I think that he should marry his fiancée? And, and I said, well, I wouldn't have ventured this opinion if you hadn't asked, but since you ask, my answer would be no. And the reason is because it seems to me at the end of the day, the quality of a relationship depends very heavily on the quality of the conversation in a relationship. And the two of you, I said, just are on different mental planets. Yeah. So granted, you find her physically attractive and you think it's all very sweet and romantic, but the conversation's not there. And he said, oh, that was so because his father had said the same and his best girlfriend had said the same. And so he broke off the engagement. Um, and uh, But they ended up getting married anyway. <laughs> And unsurprisingly, the first few years of the marriage are very rocky because he discovered that that was true, right? Now, to his credit, I think, all things considered, he, he's remained in that marriage. He's been very loyal and stoical about it. I wouldn't swap places with him, but, you know, he, he's done that. Um, uh, what has sustained me in the relationships I've got has been the conversation, and uh, uh, that feeds into my poetry um, because uh, um, I'm segueing here a bit from Jordan Peterson, um, there's a chap in Boston who wrote a book 20 years ago called Poetry's Touch on Lyric Address, and it's had a, a deep influence on me, and so a lot of the poetry I write, uh, particularly the recent poetry, um, is like a conversation with the woman that I'm addressing in any given poem. Um, and it's important to the possibility of writing such poems that that be a credible conversation. It's not pure fantasy. It's not me talking to myself. Well, perhaps you could tell us about your your the latest book, which which I only just found out about, <laughs> The Three Graces. Yes, well, it's only just been published, so it's not surprising perhaps that you hadn't found out about it. And I, uh, I'll indulge myself to this extent in saying that I was having a drink with a good friend a couple of nights ago when I got a call out of the blue from uh, a chap in Perth who is reading the book with a view to reviewing it. And uh, he said to me, uh, good thing I wasn't actually sipping wine at this point because I might have splattered the wine. And he said, uh, I have to say to you that I think this book is unprecedented in Australian letters. It, it's the best book of poetry ever written in Australia. And uh, I, I, thought, I said, well, look, that's, uh, that's a lovely thing to hear. Um, I look forward to seeing the supporting argumentation. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, it's... In a sense, it's almost an accident, and I explain this in the preface to the book. I um, uh, I wrote a book of poems um, a few years ago called Lyrical Epigrams, and I was intending by the end of 2020 to get it published as a book. But just while I was thinking about that, I had another romantic experience of a very different kind, and I wrote 52 poems that arose out of that, and then I thought, is this two books, or they don't really fit together? And just when I was thinking about that, I had a third encounter, which has been a wild ride and has produced hundreds of poems. And 
um, by the end of September last year, there were 75 poems in that news cycle, and there's now 340. But I thought at that point, all right, this is a unique book. There's poems for three different women. Each of the relationships is very different. So the nature of the conversation is very different. But between them, they almost cover the terrain in terms of the kind of romantic encounter or relationship you could have. And um, it was very interesting putting it together. And, and uh, when it was done, I sent the complete manuscript to two of the three women. I couldn't send it to the third because she didn't know I'd written the poem. She'd, she'd run away when she realised I was interested, even though I thought she was interested in the first place. <laughs> um, and the, the poems reflect on the ironies and nuances of, of encounter, you know, and unrealised possibilities and puzzlements and ironies. But I couldn't send them to her, and she doesn't know the book's been written. But the other two do, and they each came back and said they just love the book. The first of them said it's the best book I've written so far, and she and I have known each other for uh, 18 years. And the second one, who had only just bobbed up this time last year. In fact, today was literally the anniversary of when she first called me. Um, uh, and uh, she said, it's quite wonderful. Would you dedicate the book to me? Um, that became an issue because there's three women and who do I dedicate it to? And, uh, mm. but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's very special. I feel that my whole life is expressed in that book, that the aspiration to become a poet has been realized and the poems themselves range from poems, looking back to my childhood reading and my early travels to, um, the hard work involved in, in real relationship to passionate experiences to, the anomalies and ironies, as I said, of somebody who who gets in touch and wants to meet, and then when you say, "Well, great, let's have a nice dinner and long conversations," he just runs a mile. <laughs> it's the strangest thing. Um, so uh, I uh, that that sounds like a, a fa uh, I don't you know you don't have to air your dirty laundry, Paul, but that's that that particular encounter sounds. Um, I've had one of those, and I, a long time ago, uh, long before my wife. She's and uh, it was like you know, uh, hooking up with her, coming to Sydney, as in like just meeting her, and then like you know after we 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 we'd, we'd met somewhere else, and then going out all day, and then her dropping that she just like had a boyfriend, like while we're out like at a bookstore or something, having a look, and I and for the rest of the day I had to I had to ride out the rest of the day, so I feel like I need to read your poem to to sort of get the. To, to rehabilitate me <laughs> yeah. out of that Well, it, it happens that there's a further overlap because in this instance, it turns out she was married and I didn't know that, right? Um, and I won't go into all the ins and outs now because it'll take up too much time. But, and I don't in the book, of course, because I, it would. what I do is I go to great lengths in the book to protect the privacy of, the, of all three of the women. So they're not named. I call them Muse 1, Muse 2, and Muse 3, which is, sounds very abstract, as I say, but it's for that deliberate reason. I hope people will enjoy the poetry, but they're not really entitled to know the personal stories that's private. You're trying to avoid that deconstructing Harry sort of thing where uh, he writes the, the – Woody Allen, he writes the book, and then all the people from the book, like – you know, it ruins Yeah, well, uh, well, I, I don't think it will ruin their lives. That's why, as I say, the, the two of them have read the whole manuscript months ago and, and emphatically approved it. So I don't think that's a problem. And I think if the if Muse 2 was to read the poems I'd written, so to speak, to her, she'd be deeply moved. They're not in any way offensive. Um, but they do reflect on how strange it felt to have her, 
you know, call me and want to meet and say she was coming to Melbourne and, and you know, say how fantastic they'd been to encounter me earlier and et cetera, et cetera. And, and then simply because they're saying, well, well, great, let's, let's have this meal. You know, one of the poems in the book uh, addresses that specific question. It's, 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 a, it's called Saigon Secret, which is where I'd suggest we have dinner and, and it, all but the last line basically describes the, the conversation that, that I recall us having that evening. But the final line says, this, of course, is all imaginary. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, she was highly intelligent and, and uh, she was recounting to me how, among other things, she's, she was doing a PhD and what she was learning and, you know, wanting to talk about it. And so it just seemed to me the most natural thing in the world was to have a good long conversation over a meal and connect properly. Uh, and then she just cut the communication off and she came to Melbourne to do some work. She didn't get in touch with me, went away again. And uh, I eventually got an email from her saying that she was married and that she found my interest in her embarrassing and, you know, please don't um, pursue the matter. And I thought, well, okay, fine. <laughs> you know, but uh, so there it was. Whereas the, the next one um, wouldn't take no for an answer. You know, she wanted poetry from me and, uh, uh, erotic poetry of that, and uh, it's been an extraordinary adventure. In fact, one of the poems in that cycle says that if, when I was 18 years old, some wiseacre had said to me, Look, don't be in too much of a hurry to find the woman for yourself. Um, you know, be patient because when you get to your mid 60s, this hot woman, polylingual, beautiful, highly articulate, witty, sexy as all get up, will come chasing you. You'd say, oh, what kind of fantasy is that? What are you and besides, why would I wait till my 60s? You know, you couldn't make this stuff up. I mean, it's just been quite extraordinary. And uh, and that's why the book after this one is all the poetry written for her. And, and she just, I mean, I was just waking up slowly this morning, a bit too slowly because we'd agreed to be on here at 9.30 and I get an email from her saying, will you write me a poem, you know, today? I don't know what I'll get to because I'm... You're on deadline. <laughs> <laughs> now, Paul, I, I, I've listened to a few podcasts you've done where you've you've talked about poetry and you've even read some of your own poetry, and that sparked a, a, sort of a, a question in my mind. Uh, now, I'm sure there are examples of famous female poets that write about love, but is poetry a form of courtship that is exclusively carried out by men who woo the female species? Because, you know, I can't think of a female equivalent to a crooner, for example, is, is this controversial to, to, to point out? It might be regarded as controversial in some quarters. I wouldn't necessarily say it's controversial. It's just an honest question. Uh, and there are several ways to tackle it. One would be to say that actually there have been women who have written love poetry. I mean, the most famous case probably in the Western tradition, at least, is Sappho, right, in the ancient Greek world, who was such a fine love poet that, she was dubbed in the ancient world the Tenth Muse, and no male poet, to my knowledge, has ever been called the Tenth Muse, right? Perhaps because the Muse is a female, and so it was more natural fit. But you know, her poetry was very widely loved, and then of course it was destroyed by the Christians in the in the Middle Ages. Um, so we only have fragments of it left. It was it was got rid of because it was seen as too erotic and of course as lesbian. Um, and uh, there have certainly been other distinguished women poets, you know, and and. Uh, among those to whom I pay tribute in this book is uh, Emily Dickinson. Um, and Dickinson, of course, grew up in a puritanical New England and lived a pretty solitary life, really, with her family and uh, appears to have 
loved, but never had what we would uh, see as a love affair. Um, but she wrote very finely wrought poetry. Um, Elizabeth Bishop is a more recent one who's written poetry, and uh, and in my understanding, some of her finest love poetry is written for another woman. You know, uh, now it could be it, it, to come back to your question if. If from Sappho to Elizabeth Bishop, the finest poems written by women are actually love poems to other women, it almost reinforces the point you've made that poetry is about wooing women. Um, the great Russian poet um, Alexander Pushkin once declared that everything that's done in the world is done to attract the attention of women. <laughs> it doesn't seem to have occurred to him that women do things too, and, and it's not clear that they do that to attract the attention of women, you know. Uh, but nevertheless, there is, I think, an underlying interesting point in what you say. We know that in countless species, courtship activities evolve, right? Famously, the peacock's tail and all sorts of variations in that theme. And so it's by no means a silly question to ask, is it possible that in general terms, at least, poetry is something that, that males do in order to try and impress the girls? But I, I honestly don't know whether I would say that's the truth, I think, because poetry has served a number of different functions. Um, and, and that's probably one of them. You know, I've, I've got behind me on the wall here, you can probably see it if I step aside the poster from Shakespeare in Love. And if you've seen that film, there's a point in it where some young floozy at the court comes up to the young Shakespeare and says, oh, Will, write me a sonnet. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, and it can be in that sense, playful, it can be frivolous, it can be very serious. The, um, uh, and um, certainly my current muse um, is so literate that uniquely in my experience, when I write a poetry, I can allude to anything right across the Western Canada over 3000 years. I, I can, you know, ancient, medieval and modern, I can refer to the sciences, I can make subtle uses of language, subtle inflections. She doesn't miss a thing. And she's extraordinary. Uh, I've never met another woman like her, you know, that she lives and breathes poetry and she'll ring up and want to talk about Shakespeare's sonnets or about Dylan Thomas or um, she rang up one day and said, you know, when did you last read Anna Marvell's To His Coy Mistress? And I said, oh, gosh, years ago. And Isn't it wonderful, she said. And I said, well, my memory of it is that the rhyme seems a bit forced at times, but um, clearly you're enthusiastic. And she said, oh, yes, I love it. Of course, I'm not coy, she said. <laughs> Well, Paul, well, I'm. I feel like we've only just got started, but we are sadly running out of time, unfortunately. So, I feel like you seem like someone who has actively. Uh, you, you, you've at some point you, you decided to to become, as you say, a, 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 a full human being. You've activated yourself, and I just wonder if you've got anything, some advice or or some some words to, for people who are listening and thinking. Do you know what? Like, I'd like to do some of the things we've been talking about. Like, it could be knowing more about culture or history of the arts. It could be, uh, you know, having adventures. It could be uh, uh, um, be be becoming a poet, becoming a novice, whatever it is. Uh, Do do you have any advice for people who are maybe trapped in in various forms of inertia? Gosh, how much time have we got? (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, There's a risk of... of, um lapsing into cliche, I think, in trying to encapsulate an answer to that in, in a brief space. Uh, and it can be, uh, or land as condescending to give glib advice to people whose circumstances 
one is not familiar with. You know what I mean? Uh, I mean, if I was to say something like, well, look, the key to it is to take life on. Don't retreat. Don't be a shrinking violet. You know, well, it's easy to say. Um, and I can say that that's what I've done. You know, I've, I've taken bold steps. Um, and, uh, and it hasn't been easy. I wouldn't want to suggest that I've been able to do what I have and it's been a breeze. It really hasn't. Um, and what that means is that people can try it on and it might not work out for them, you know, in the same way that many a young person aspires to be a pop singer or a sports star or a model or whatever, and only a fraction of them really succeed, really get to the top of their game. Uh, and we overlook the very large number of people who strive and remain largely anonymous or whose careers are crippled by injury or accident or who knows what. Right. So there's no magic formula, but but the bottom line is that that you've got to form a vision of what you're after. And then while being as realistic as you can, give it everything you've got because you only live once. And as people like to say, yeah, life's actually not a dress rehearsal. I, I do feel as though all the previous romantic encounters and all the attempts I made in the past to write poetry were a dress rehearsal for what I'm writing at the moment or have written in the last 12 months because it's been a very special experience. Now, I couldn't have arranged it this way. I didn't arrange it this way. It happened to me. You know, this this woman sought me out, and I'm 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 in awe of uh, of what's happened. It's just been simply amazing. Um, that's good fortune. Um, but uh, but if you're not out there, it's not going to happen. Right? And and this happened or is possible for it to happen because she was able to find me online because she read some of the stuff I'd written and thought I want some of that. Right. So. Uh, that's what I said when I heard you uh, recently. I was like, I want some of that. On the show. <laughs> and here it is. So. Well, thank you for reaching out. Uh, well, Paul, <laughs> thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, if people want to follow you or find you, uh, are you active on social media? I, I, I'm reasonably active. That is to say I have a Twitter account, a Facebook account, a LinkedIn account. Um, I also have a website, which um, I need now to update because it hasn't been updated uh, for over a year and in the meantime this whole book has taken shape um but it nevertheless tells a good deal about me and and lists my previously published books and gives access to a number of my poems and some of my essays and uh some of the podcasts and tells you a bit about my background um and uh you know it's funny i i i'm not sure whether i should say this but uh, every now and again i look at a profile like that on the website you know and it, and it says you know the, PhD in international relations and former head of the China Desk in Defence Intelligence and consultant in applied cognitive science and poet and public intellectual. And I think, who the fuck is this? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, great stuff. Well, Paul, uh, look, thanks for being so generous with your time. Uh, uh, we we have a final question we ask. We'd like to know what you're reading right now. Oh, well, my bedtime reading at the moment is a recently published biography of Fernando Pessoa, the, the Portuguese 20th century poet, um, who is a thoroughly eccentric character. Um, and it's, a, it's quite an absorbing, massive book. It's about 1,100 pages. I'm only 320 pages into it. I read a chapter each night just before I fall asleep, you know. <laughs> Um, and I'm uh, I'm also uh, reading for a review soon in Australia in the new biography of Xi Jinping, um, and uh, they're keen for me to review that book. They're going to give me 1,200 words instead of the usual 800 to write about Xi. Um, 
and uh, oh, I've got quite a pile. I mean, it, there's a, a trio of books I just acquired a couple of days ago, which I, I will read as soon as I can find the time. Um, one is called Ways of Being, and it's about um, reconsidering what we mean by intelligence and finding it in the ways that various kinds of animals and plant, um, as it were, conduct themselves that they do things, they understand things, they act in ways which by any other name surely we would regard as intelligent, but it's not intelligence in a way that we think of it in terms of science or philosophy or the writing of history or the use of human language. Um, uh, and uh, though I've always got, you know, probably a dozen books on the go at any given time, um, the, the challenge is both to get through them and to make sense of it as I go and I'm jumping from one subject to another and, uh, and then there are books that you know I've got sitting there that I, I want to read. Uh, I discovered one recently called uh, the Red Sea Scrolls, you've probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were found in 1948 and which threw new light on um, uh, classical Judaism and the antecedents to Christianity. Um, this is the Red Sea Scrolls and it's um, about archaeological findings at a um, a dig on the Red Sea coast, which have for the first time in documented form shown how it was that the pharaohs in the 27th century built the Great Pyramid at Giza. Um, there's all sorts of bills of lading about the stone being imported and shipped and there's documents about how they used it and um, how they thought about the engineering. This is a archaeological breakthrough you know and uh, so so it wasn't aliens it wasn't aliens no because <laughs> no, i've always said when people raise the bizarre notion that it was aliens you know if they were capable of getting here from interstellar space why not that they built something made only of stone they were fun with it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. sandcastles they were just mucking around yes they were just having fun on the beach yes yeah <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks again, Paul. Thanks for letting us know about those about those books. It's always fascinating to hear what our guests are reading and, and we dip in where we can. Uh, I feel like we've got to have you back, Paul. There's too much to talk about, so please say you'll come back at some point. I'll come back anytime. I enjoy the conversation. Wonderful. Thank you.